1 Samuel 8 this morning. And we are going to be in verses 9 through 19. Remember last week we laid a foundation. And that foundation was intended to show us exactly what decision Israel had made. The decision to ask for a king. And it was going, we were going to take that foundation and build upon it for the next couple of weeks some doctrinal truths about the reality of this rejection. The reality of Israel's rejection, we might say, of God as their king. And today we are going to learn about what we'll call the permissive will of God. And in order to do this, again, I need to lay a doctrinal foundation this morning of one of the abiding truths found throughout Scripture. And this abiding truth is that though God is indeed sovereign over all things, in His sovereignty He has chosen to limit Himself with respect to man's free will. That God has sovereignly decreed that in His will that man would have the ability to choose His moral and spiritual path either exercising his will toward God or exercising his will against God. Now, without an understanding of, or at least understanding that there is interplay between God's sovereignty and man's free will, the Christian will end up operating within one of two erroneous conclusions, both of which are foreign to the word of God. They will either believe that God is so sovereign that man effectively has no free will, And so every spiritual choice that a man makes is no more or no less than exactly what God intended for him to do. Or he will believe that man has a free will that is in fact capable of overriding God's will, thus stating that man is the author of his own redemption or the author of his own damnation, completely apart from the power of God to affect his choice. Both of these ideas are in fact foreign to the scriptures. For a man to lack a free will with respect to his choices makes us little more than automatons, beings that are manipulated by a supreme being. That God would demand love, but only enable this love in a certain subset of human beings, and then punish those who he doesn't allow to love him, is a picture of a God that is wholly foreign to the character of the God of the Bible. It almost goes without saying, furthermore, that compelled love is no love at all. I can't force love. And if I try to force love, it does not, it's no longer love. It does not have the characteristics of love any longer. Love is not love if the element of choice is not present. Love, by very definition, is a choice. And if it is not chosen, if it is a forced love, it is little more than emotional slavery. Now, for a man to operate in free will outside of the scope of God's sovereignty is to say that God is, in fact, not sovereign. So that we would say the ultimate responsibility for man is his own, and it denies the fact that God is in ultimate control. It would furthermore lead us to the inevitable conclusion that man's fate is in his own hands, so that his final destination rested on himself and his own capacity. In this scenario, the man that ends up in hell would be there simply because he didn't measure up, and the man that ends up in heaven would be there because he did measure up. And just like the other extreme, we do not see that in Scripture. What we do see in Scripture is a balance. And interestingly enough, the great equalizer is sin. 
Sin is the great equalizer, making it clear that none of us can measure up to God. And it reveals thus that no one has the capacity to do anything about our spiritual fate. This great equalizing force allows God to be the redeemer and the condition of our redemption not to be effort or worth, not to be us measuring up, but a choice. A choice as to whether or not we will accept the price that has already been paid. So then, though man has the capacity to exercise his will either for or against God, he did nothing to accept that which has been purchased. Uh, Excuse me, he does nothing other than to accept what has been purchased and thus can claim no other advantage over anyone else but that he believed what others rejected. This does not make salvation a work of our own power, but only an effect of our willingness to believe the promises of God, where another man willingly rejected those same promises. Why am I laying this foundation? Because this morning we are going to be talking about an element of the will of God, the permissive will of God, that cannot exist if we do not believe that man has some capacity to make choices, if man does not have a free will. We at Legacy Baptist Church take this middle position, recognizing that God is absolutely sovereign, but also understanding that in God's sovereignty, He has given mankind the freedom and capacity to exercise His free will. If we remove the free will element of the equation, then um, we say that God is sovereign outside of our free will, then we are heading toward the the theology of Calvinism, and which is a subset of Reformed theology. If we head the other direction and remove the idea of, well, we elevate man's free will and, and lower the idea of sovereignty, then we're heading toward what is typically called in theology the Arminian position. If you've been to our website, if you've, if you've looked at our doctrine or if you're familiar with it, you recognize that we reject both titles and we stay in a balanced position in the middle recognizing that God is absolutely sovereign but understanding that man has free will in the midst. You say, Pastor, is that even possible? It is. And for this, though I rarely do this, I'd like to quote another author. And it's going to be a fairly lengthy quote, but he does a good job at describing the interplay between the sovereignty of God and man's free will. Listen to what he has to say. God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. A man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom God has willed to give man limited freedom, who is there to stay his hand or say, What doest thou? Man's free will, or man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. Perhaps a homely illustration might help us to understand. An ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. 
This is at least a faint picture of sovereignty. On board the liner are several scores of passengers. These are not in chains, neither are their activities determined for them by decree. They are completely free to move about as they will. They eat, sleep, play, lounge on the deck, read, talk, all together as they please. But all the while, the great liner is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. Both freedom and sovereignty are present here and they do not contradict each other. So it is, I believe, with man's freedom and the sovereignty of God. The mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of those eternal purposes which he purposed in Christ before the world began. We do not know all that is included in these purposes, but enough has been disclosed to furnish us with a broad outline of the things to come and give us good hope and firm assurance of future well-being. We know that God will fulfill every promise made to the prophets. We know that sinners will someday be cleansed out of the earth. We know that a ransomed company will enter into the joy of God and that the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom of their Father. We know that God's perfections will yet receive universal acclamation that all created intelligences will own Jesus Christ, Lord, to the glory of God the Father, that the present imperfect order will be done away and a new heaven and a new earth will be established forever. Toward all this, God is moving with infinite wisdom and perfect precision of action. No one can dissuade him from his purposes. Nothing can turn him aside from his plans. Since he is omniscient, there can be no unforeseen circumstances, no accidents. As he is sovereign, there can be no countermanded orders, no breakdown in authority. As he is omnipotent, there can be no want of power to achieve his chosen ends. God is sufficient unto himself for all these things. This is a good summary of our view of man's free will and God's sovereignty. It's a view that is balanced and biblical. And what we're going to speak of today is this interplay, this interplay between God's sovereignty and man's free will. If God does, in the scope of his sovereign will, limit himself with respect to the free will of man, then we will inevitably come to crossroads along the path of life where man's will conflicts with God's will. And most of these times, things happen as we might expect. God says, nope, my will, not your will. And man receives the deep negative consequences of his rebellion against God, and God moves on with plans unhindered. Yet there are some aberrations to this theme in Scripture. Times where God has openly expressed what he wants done, his divine will is ignored by man, and instead of overruling those men, God allows for the men to overrule him. Now, we've already presented the reality that we believe God is absolutely sovereign, so I'm not talking about God's sovereignty being overruled, but God's perfect will. And we see one of these instances in 1 Samuel 8. Last week we looked at verse 7, and in verse 7 it said this, and the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, 
that I should not reign over them. Remember from last time, the people demanded a king, knowing that God had not yet provided them a king. And in doing so, they declared that they wanted to go their own way. They rejected God's rule over them. They wanted to be like the other nations that were around them. And I mentioned last week what I would have done in that situation, right? They say, we want a king. I say, no, you can't have a king. I'm your king. No king for you. And we would expect this of God, but this isn't what he does here. Instead, he tells Samuel to indulge their rebellion, to allow them to have a king, even though God doesn't want them yet to have a king. God is allowing the collective will of the nation with respect to their leadership to overrule his desire for them as their king and his desire for their best well-being. And this can be a very troubling circumstance if we don't understand what's happening here and the character of God with respect to his will. So I'm going to describe it in this way. God's will is sovereign. Nothing ever surprises God. Nothing thwarts God's eternal purposes. Nothing can derail the great ocean liner of God's will. Nothing unexpected ever happens in God's will. But like the illustration given earlier, there are some other things happening along the journey of this ocean liner. Within the scope of God's sovereign will, there are components, subsets, how he operates within his sovereignty. Though they sometimes take on different names, I will call them God's perfect will, God's permissive will, and God's overruling will. Now let me just say this as we get started here. This breakup that you see is synthetic. You will not find a teaching in Scripture where it teaches on the three components of God's will. It's a synthetic breakup, uh, a systematic way for us to organize what we observe in Scripture. The Bible simply speaks of the will of God, and we see from how it operates that it manifests itself in different ways. We impose these labels upon these different manifestations so that we can better understand God. And this is the whole point of what we would call a systematic theology. There are people who take issue with believers for doing this. They say, well, certain these words aren't in the Bible. Rapture, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's true, it's not. The word dispensation is not in the Bible in, in, the, in the way we would use it dispensationally. Dispensation is. It's true, it's not. Um, the word... Um, Permissive will, or the idea of the permissive will, you don't see that taught in the Bible. It's true. They aren't in the Bible. But when we boil down that argument and that perspective, there's a little bit of immaturity in that. Because as we approach the Word of God, we recognize that there is necessity in organizing the Word of God and systematizing the Word of God into teachings, into doctrines, that we can understand. There are 66 books of the Bible written over thousands of years and somehow we know it's one book, right? It's 66 different books in one book and it is cohesive. The first agrees with the last and everything in between. It agrees with itself. There are no contradictions. It is one complete revealed record. But how do we take 66 books of the Bible written over thousands of years, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and how do we glean the teachings from it? Well, certainly we can go from passage to passage, but we, can, we also need to combine it. And this is where systematic theology comes in. 
where we take the truths of God's word and we, make, we organize them into a fashion that we can wrap our minds around. And that's what we're doing this morning with the will of God. We are taking the will of God, which is presented in scripture, and then we're taking how that will manifests itself and we are placing it into three categories. The perfect will of God, the permissive will of God, and the overruling will of God. And in doing so, we're not seeking to go outside of the Bible for our authority. Now, we've gone outside of the Bible for our labels, but not for our authority. But rather, we're taking the understanding of the Word of God and we're organizing it in such a way that we can wrap our minds around it better. So allow me to give you a brief explanation of um, the, the two that we're not looking at this morning the perfect will of God and the overruling will of God. And then we'll focus in on our time today, what we see in 1 Samuel 8, the permissive will of God. God's perfect will, sometimes it's called God's directive will, is that which God teaches and God expresses that he wants to happen. This is what we read in the Bible. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, the Bible says this, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification that ye should abstain from fornication. Now here the Bible says it outright. We don't always get that. That's kind of nice this time. The Bible says it outright. This is the will of God. This is what God wants for you, that you would be sanctified and that you would abstain from fornication. There's no question there what the will of God is. Not every aspect of God's will God's perfect will, however, comes to pass, right? Does, does that verse always come to pass in his believers? It doesn't. This is God's perfect will. It's been expressed for us, but it doesn't always come to pass. In 2 Peter 3.9, we read this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here we see God's perfect will. God's perfect will is that not one man would perish. Not one man would die separated from him for eternity. This is not God's will. Much rather, it's God's will that every man would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Every man would come to repentance. In Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus said that everlasting fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. It doesn't say that the everlasting fire was prepared for men. But God cannot abide evil. And when men fell to evil, rebelled against God, he placed himself on the path toward destruction. Was this choice by man within the scope of God's sovereign will? Absolutely. It was within the scope of God's sovereign will that men would rebel against him. Was this choice by man within the scope of God's perfect will? Absolutely not. It was not God's perfect will that man would rebel against him. It is not God's perfect will that man lives in rebellion against God. It is God's perfect will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we see throughout the scriptures that God presents what we would call his ideal, his directive will, his perfect will. And we see this in our own lives as well. Every Sunday, when I come to church, I have an idea of how I would like to see the service go, who I expect to be here, how we're going to, how things are going to go, how the song service is going to go, how the prayer time is going to go. And I have it all in my mind and I expect how it's going to, how it's going to play out. 
I work with what I have. I deal with what comes my way. At the end of the day, I can't always say, yeah, that's exactly how I envisioned it. But you know what? It, it's, it still happens, right? Sunday morning happens, whether things go well or not, whether, whether uh, the songs go well or not, whether my voice is all uh, crackly and sounds like a frog and I can hardly sing that morning or not. It happens, right? It, it gets done. It wouldn't be what I would desire in, in full, but it gets done. And, and this is a limited example because I'm not sovereign and God is. But the idea is that we have a perfect will and we recognize that our perfect will doesn't always come to pass. God presents in this book right here His will. This is what God wants. This is who God is. This is what God expects. And He presents that, but it doesn't always come to pass. Now, since the focus of our message is the permissive will, I'm going to skip that one. If, if uh, you're one of those that has to go from left to right, I'm skipping the middle there for just a moment. And we're going to skip over to the right side of the screen here to God's overruling will. God's overruling will is manifest when a created being seeks to exercise his will in such a way that he would be thwarting God's purposes, eternal purposes, if he were allowed to do his thing. And so God must step in and divert that creature's path. Say, Pastor, I really don't get that. Well, most of us in here understand the story of Jonah, right? Jonah is an example of what we would designate as God's overruling will. Jonah was a prophet of God, prophet in Israel, and God calls him to preach to the great Assyrian capital of Nineveh. And Jonah hears that God wants him to preach to Nineveh, and he says, I don't want to do that. And the reason why he didn't want to do that is because he knew that if he preached to Nineveh and Nineveh repented, that God would show mercy and he didn't want Nineveh to have mercy. He hated Nineveh because they were the capital of the Assyrian Empire who, were, who had attacked Israel on numerous occasions, enslaved them, uh, killed many of them. So he didn't want mercy for Nineveh. So he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to thwart God's purposes. I'm going to run the other way. So he gets on a boat to Tarshish which is across the Mediterranean Sea, he gets on this boat and we see that God's not going to let him off the hook that easy, right? So a great storm kicks up and the boat is about ready to sink. Jonah is just having a good time sleeping in the, in the bottom of the boat and, and this boat is about to sink and the people wake him up and say, hey, you need to be praying to your God that we do not sink. Something is wrong here. We're going to cast lots, they say, and we're going to find out who, who God is angry at. And they cast lots and the lot falls on Jonah. And Jonah admits it. He says, yes, I'm a servant of the living God. I'm running away from God's will. Did he just fall down on his knees and repent right there? And say, God, okay, I'll serve you? He sure didn't. He still was planning on running against God's will. So what did he tell the fishermen to do? Throw me overboard. He says, I would rather be thrown into the sea and drown than go fulfill God's will. I am, I am not going to let God use me for this purpose. Throw me into the sea. So they throw him into the sea. And that's it, right? He dies. Wrong. Wrong. God had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. So for three days and three nights, Jonah is in the belly of this fish. Now, we, we might think of it... Um, in, in uh, standards of what perhaps you've seen on an old flannel graph or, or maybe from your, your Pinocchio days of this humongous fish and, and he's sitting in there just fine and there are little fish floating around him and he's eating and everything. Probably not the case. Probably more the case that he's in the belly of this fish being burned by digestive juices, 
He's miserable. He is not a happy camper here. And he wants to die, but he's not dying. He wants to get out of this, but God is not letting him out of this. God has overruled Jonah in this. And Jonah finally relents. Three days and three nights later, he finally says, God, you're God, I'm man. You win, I lose. I'll do what you say. And as soon as Jonah repents of his sin, the fish spits him back on land and Jonah goes and he preaches to Nineveh. This is the overruling will of God. When a man does everything he can to resist God, but God's purposes demand his obedience, God will not allow him he, he can disobey, but God is going to turn him back. Now, take note, this is not God's will overrule, overriding man's will. This is God's will overruling man's will. God does not all of a sudden take Jonah's will and twist it and just make Jonah want to do what he doesn't want to do. God brings Jonah to the place where Jonah is willing to submit his will to God's. The overruling will of God. The final manifestation of God's sovereign will, we're finally here, the topic of our sermon, the permissive will of God. God's permissive will comes into play when man's choices, his volition, to act against God's perfect will is permitted by God. When God allows man to act against God's revealed will. Within the scope of God's permissive will, mankind is allowed to resist God. And by being allowed to resist God, he's brought to a place where he has to suffer the consequences of that resistance. God will allow them to make their poor decisions and then discipline them in his justice for the decisions that they made. And the best scriptural example of this is found in Numbers 22 with the case of a man named Balaam. You may not be as familiar with Balaam as perhaps you were with Joseph or J- Jonah. I took for granted that you knew Jonah. If, you, if you're not familiar with Balaam, I'd encourage you to turn to Numbers 22. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and turn there myself as well. Many of the scriptures will be on the screen. But if you'd like to look at it in your Bible, mark some things up. If you're not familiar with Balaam, um, that might be a help to you. Balaam was a well-known diviner in the land of Canaan at the time of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. He had a reputation as a powerful man in the land, a man who, if he blessed someone, that man was blessed. If he cursed someone, that man was cursed. And we find that he does, in fact, understand and know Jehovah God. He has some understanding and some relationship, and it seems to be a fairly good relationship with Jehovah God. So Israel comes out of Egypt and the Ammonites resist them. They come against them trying to destroy them as a people. Well, God gave Israel a great victory over the Ammonites and this greatly concerned the king of Moab. This king's name was Balak. Balak. Now, Balak was very concerned about Israel. He saw that the Ammonites had been destroyed and how powerful the Ammonite people were. And so he says, here's what I need to do. In order to get the upper hand against Israel, I need them to be cursed. So he sends to Balaam and asks Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. Uh, Balak sends an emissary. He sends money. He sends princes. He sends people. And he says, Please, I want to hire your services of divination. I want you to curse this people. And Balaam's response was that he would consult the Lord 
And if God says okay, then he'll do it. And this is how God responded to Balaam in Numbers 22.12. Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. Don't go with them. Don't curse them. They are blessed. Pretty straightforward, right? He's received the word of the Lord. So Balaam gets his answer. He responds to the emissary. He says to the princes, I'm sorry, I can't do what you're asking. The Lord said, I can't go with you. The Lord said, I can't curse these people. I'm sorry, you need to go. Good job, Balaam. You did a good job there. So they leave. They go back to Balak. Balak says, no, no, every man has his price. So he sends more honorable princes. He sends more money. They show up at Balaam's door and they say, here's the deal, Balaam. Honorable princes are here. We're going to give you a lot of money and we're going to make you a, a, a very honorable man, but we need you to curse this people. And Balaam answers this way in Numbers 22.18. If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Good job, Balaam. You're doing a good job. This is exactly what, what we would think a servant of the Lord should do. He's doing it well. Great, if only it stopped at verse 18. But it doesn't. Verse 19, what does he say? Now therefore I pray you, tarry ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. Wait a minute. What more can he say? What more can he say than what he said? Don't go with them. Don't curse these people. They are blessed. What more could Balaam possibly hear from the Lord in regard to this matter? And here is where Balaam, he sounds good still, but he has, in his mind and in his heart, he has stepped away from what God has said and he's looking for, for his will. He's trying to find a way to get his will out of God's will. He's looking for the loophole that will let him get what he wants without saying that he's going against God's will here. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, uh, 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 I can't do anything if the Lord doesn't let me, but let me just ask God again. Let me just ask God again here. So verse 22. Oh, excuse me. I got ahead of myself here. Um, Okay. Um, in verse 20, we read this. And God came unto Balaam at night. So this is that night. And said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall, speak unto, uh, I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. Now, if you were thinking about the scenario where God says, don't go with them, don't curse them, they are, don't curse these people, they are blessed. And you knew that Balaam was going to go back and talk to the Lord. Would you expect that response? Absolutely not. You'd expect God to say, no, don't go with them, don't curse them, they are blessed. But he doesn't. He says, okay, go with them. What just happened here? Did God just change his mind? That would be our initial thought, that God has changed his mind, right? I mean, God said, don't go. And then Balaam comes back and says, Lord, what more do you have for me here? And, and God says, go. God just changed his mind. We would think that, but in fact, that is not what is happening here. We'll see in just a minute that God is not pleased. 
So Balaam tells them, okay, I can go now. And he happily packs his bag and he goes with them. Why? Well, we don't know. God still tells Balaam that he can't do what they're asking him to do, so why would he go? Right? God says, the only thing that you'll say is the thing that I tell you you can say. Balaam knows he can't curse the people, but hey, this is one more step closer to what he needs, what he wants. He's taking baby steps here. He is rationalizing his will into God's will. He really wants those riches and honor. So in verse 22, look at what it says. And God's anger was kindled because he went. Wait a minute. God said he could go. Are we just looking at one big contradictory passage here? He says, don't go. Balaam says, I won't go. Then Balaam says, I'm going to ask the Lord again. God says, go. And now God's angry at him for going? Well, yes, because the minute that Balaam went to ask God about something that he'd already had the answer to, looking for God to change his answer, rationalizing his will into God's will, he stepped out of God's perfect will and he stepped into God's permissive will. And so now God, we're going to see, is going to let him go even though God doesn't want him to go. And so we literally see here the angel of the Lord standing in the way as an adversary, ready to kill Balaam for his rebellion. And the scriptures say in verse 22 that Balaam was riding upon an ass and his two servants were with him. And as the story goes, perhaps you recall, uh, Balaam is riding on his donkey and the first time the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, he turns aside into the field. And he turns out of the way. And so Balaam whips his donkey, gets back on, and moves on his path. The next time, there's a wall next to him, and the angel of the Lord is there, and the, the donkey moves out of the way, and he crushes Balaam's leg against a wall, moving out of the way. And Balaam whips his donkey, and he gets back on. And then the third time, there's a wall on either side. Balaam's in like this small little area, and he's walking with his donkey, and there's a wall on either side, and the donkey can't divert his path. And the angel of the Lord is standing in front of him with a sword ready to kill Balaam, and so the donkey just poof, falls flat just falls out from underneath Balaam. Balaam goes down with him. Balaam starts beating his donkey again. And God allows the donkey to speak. He opens the donkey's mouth and the donkey says, she says, why do you keep hitting me? And Balaam, he starts talking to the thing like, like he doesn't even miss a beat here. I'd have been like, whoa, we're talking donkey. He doesn't miss a beat. He just starts, well, because you're not doing what I tell you to do. And the donkey says, look, you're my master. I would do it except that there's this big, angry man with a flaming sword in front of you ready to chop your head off. And so I'm diverting out of the way to save your life. And then the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel of the Lord there. And in, in uh, verse 34, Balaam says this, Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Wait a minute. How could you not know? Don't go with them. Don't curse these people, for they are blessed. But Balaam says, I didn't know, Lord. I didn't know. If, if, if you're displeased, I'll turn around. If, Balaam, if, if it displeased thee, he's about ready to kill you, and you say if. And here we see, once again, Balaam's heart is revealed. He's not on board with God. And so what does God do? He doesn't resist him. He doesn't resist him. Look at verse 35. The angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that thou shalt speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. God allows him to go. We, th this story is confusing if there is no such thing as God's permissive will. Why would God allow him to go but not want him to go? Because God is not in the business of 
twisting your will. He's not in the business of, if He has revealed His will to you, He's not in the business of making you obey it. And that's what we see in the story of Balaam and Balak. Now, in this case, the point is abundantly clear. God's will is obvious. For some reason, God's allowing Balaam to resist it. He's permitting Balaam to do that which God doesn't want Balaam to do. And the permissive will of God is never a place where we want to be. The end of this story is not very good. Balaam finally gets to Balak and he says, I'm sorry, I can't curse the people, but I'll try. So he opens his mouth to curse the people and the only thing that comes out is a blessing. And he finishes his blessing and Balak says, what was that? That's not what I'm paying you for. Try again. He opens his mouth to curse the people again and another blessing comes forth. This happens three times. Balak says, you need to stop this. This isn't working. This is an example of the overruling will of God. That God has now overruled Balaam's actions and not allowed him to curse the people. Well, after failing three times to curse Israel, he quits and then he finds another way. He finds a way around it. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14 tells us that the doctrine of Balaam was to teach the people how to commit fornication. And we find just a couple of chapters later that Balaam uh, suggests to Balak that, well, since I can't curse these people, how about you let God curse these people? So send in your prostitutes and have the men of Israel fornicate with these prostitute women and then God will have no choice in His justice but to bring out consequences on Israel. And so Israel will be cursed by their own sin instead of by my curse. And so they did that and it worked for a little while until a zealous man named Phineas, Aaron's son, stopped the plague, uh, pacified the wrath of God. And when the ordeal was over, God commanded Israel to go and to fight against Moab. And in the battle that they fight against Moab, we find in Numbers chapter 31, verse 8, that Balaam was among the many that were killed on that day. Balaam's persistence in the permissive will of God led to his utter destruction. And you know, that's about par for the course with the permissive will of God. Now, what does all this have to do with 1 Samuel chapter 8? If you turned in your Bible to Numbers 22, I encourage you to turn back to 1 Samuel 8. As we return to the text, we find that Israel is insisting upon something that God has already told them He does not yet want them to have. They want a king. God has not given them a king. They sought for an excuse to get a king. And Samuel's rebellious sons gave them that excuse that they were looking for. We talked about that last week. Just as Balaam was looking for some excuse to follow those princes of Balak, Israel was looking for some excuse to demand a king. And Samuel's rebellious sons gave them that excuse. They demanded a king and Samuel's angry and he goes before the Lord angry and he expects God to say no like he wants to say no and God says, let them have their king. Not because God wanted them to have a king yet, but because God is choosing in his sovereignty not to resist the will of the people. So Israel, right here, transitions from resting in God's promises and his perfect will into the permissive will of God by asking for a king. 
And just as we saw with Balaam, the consequences of God's permissive will are devastating. So in verse 9 of 1 Samuel 8, God says, Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of king that shall reign over them. I love this. God says, Yep, tell them that they can have a king, but before they make their final decision, tell them what's going to happen when they get their king and see if they still want to make the decision. A final opportunity for God through prophetic revelation to remind them that he's, he's going to be a better king than they could ever have physically. And this is what we see in verses 10 through 18. We see God telling the people the kind of king that they'll have. I'm going to go ahead and read it. I just have bullet points on the screen as I read. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. And he shall cry out, and ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. This is what's going to happen, Israel. You're going to get a king, and this king is going to take things from you because that's what happens when you get a king. They need to run a government. They need to, they need to, to run this nation. And to run this nation, they are going to take your things and appropriate them to become their things. They're going to begin to tax you. They're going to take your children. They're going to make them servants in their household. They're going to take your land so that they can function. They're going to um, deal taxes. They're going to do all of these things. And in the end, you are going to cry out against this king. And on that day, it's going to be you that's going to have to stand there empty-handed because I'm not going to hear you because I'm warning you right now that this is what is going to happen if you ask for a king. Wouldn't it be wonderful to operate under a government where it was just you and God? Where you had your own land? Where you could keep your kids? Where you didn't have any obligations to a government? Where you didn't need a government to protect you because God protected you? You didn't need a standing army. How much money do we put into keeping a standing army in this country every year? Imagine if we didn't have to put any money into a standing army. Imagine if the government never needed to repurpose land. Imagine if all of those things were taken care of by God and it was you and your family and your land and you could live in freedom before God. I mean, that's like paradise. That's what Israel had been promised. And they say, no, 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 we want a government. We want a king. Make us like all the other kings around us. And God says, this is the kind of king you're going to get. This is the situation you're going to be in. This is your last chance before you completely step into my permissive will. And look at verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, nay, but we will have a king over us. They don't care what the cost will be. They want that king. God has revealed His will. 
The people said, no, we want this instead. God said, okay, you can have it. And they will pay, pay dearly for it. Now we've learned about three manifestations of God's sovereign will today. The perfect will of God is where we want to rest. The overruling will of God is often unpleasant, but typically ends with our best good in mind as God overrules and diverts the will of man to bring them into his purposes. But the permissive will of God, this is a place that you absolutely never, ever, ever want to be. And when is it when we most often find ourselves in the permissive will of God? When God's word is clear on something and we explain God's words away or pursue our own purposes in the name of God, where we jump through hoops to explain away what God has clearly stated. And let me give you a couple of church examples. Church examples, not individual. 1 Timothy 2.12 But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. You hear a church say, we've prayed about it, we've considered it, we've sought counsel, and we've just decided that this woman's going to be our next pastor. And now we see our church growing, we feel like the Lord is blessing us because we made this decision, and, and well, see, here's the problem. The Word of God has been made clear. Perhaps you did find peace. Perhaps God didn't throw up any spiritual red flags, but on the authority of God's word, he didn't do that because he's pleased with the church's decision. Rather, God has yielded that church over to his permissive will. And because they refused to listen to God's word and they sought to go outside of the clearly established truths of God's word to explain away what God wanted and to do what they wanted, he might just give them what they wanted. And... When they're in the permissive will, what we can know without question is that that church will suffer spiritual consequences. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? So we talk about the yoking principle and we see the clear commands of Scripture that, that we would not yoke in a deep personal relationship a believer with an unbeliever. Now, we often apply this to marriage, but it could also be applied to various other aspects of, of life, a deep friendships, business relationships, those sorts of things. Uh, but you, you see a, a Christian young man or a Christian young woman who's swept away by uh, some unbelieving person and, and they want to marry that person. They know that this person is an unbeliever, but they're sure over time they'll see the light. They're sure that they'll come to Christ. They pray, they get counsel, and they feel peace about their decision, and they're sure that God is pleased. The problem is God has revealed his will. Now, I know that some of us perhaps have been in those situations, and maybe the Lord has brought it to pass, and praise God when when he sees us beyond our, our poor choices, but, but we see what God's will is. The peace that one is feeling is, is perhaps not the peace of God, but the resignation of God who has yielded that person to their permissive will because they were unwilling to obey what the Bible clearly states. God is going to allow them to go their own way. And this person can know without question because the word of God is true that they will suffer spiritual consequences from being in the permissive will of God. We could go on with examples, but it's sufficient for us to say this. God has spoken to us in his word. To the extent that God has made his will known, he expects 
that to be enough for us. Where God's word is clear, God's will is clear. If we are not satisfied with God's word and we go outside of God's word and go against God's word thinking that we have more information that would invalidate God's word to explain away the will of God, which is already clearly stated, or to discern God's will where there's no discernment necessary, but only obedience, we will likely find ourselves walking in God's permissive will. And there will be consequences. So how then do we successfully avoid the permissive will of God? First, let me just say this. There are many, many circumstances in life where the word of God forms only the template, the basis for our decisions. And then we must use prayer and counsel and wisdom and care to decide which way we should go. I need to know whether or not to quit my job and go into full-time ministry. I can't just close my eyes, open the Bible, point, and say, okay, here we go. I'm going to just do whatever it might say in the Bible. We can't do that. There's no Bible passage that inherently tells me what profession I should pursue. I need counsel. I need prayer. I need the leading of the Holy Spirit. We're not considering those circumstances today. Circumstances where we are genuinely seeking God's will and we need His sovereignty to direct us into it. We're speaking of circumstances today where God has made His will known. This is the will of God for you, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Very clear. We know what God expects. When the Bible says it, but you refuse to believe it, this is when we find ourselves drifting into the permissive will of God, where we have explained away God's word, where we have used uh, mental gymnastics to explain away what God has told us clearly he wants in order to go in a direction where we can say we're serving God, but we're actually serving ourselves and God might just let us go there. So when the Bible says that God created the world in six days and we jump through a hundred doctrinal loopholes to explain it away, we might be sending our ministry into the permissive will of God. When the Bible says that sodomy is an abomination to the Lord and a Christian spends great time and effort explaining it away, that ministry might be walking into the permissive will of God. When the Bible speaks against fornication and deceit and drunkenness and lying and theft, and a Christian finds a way to biblically or spiritually justify their rebellion, they are walking into the permissive will of God. Name the clear expectation of God. Find the people contending the inevitable perversion of that doctrine, and you will likely find people that are walking in God's permissive will. And they will suffer the spiritual consequences of their decisions. So, how do we avoid the permissive will of God? Know and believe the Bible. Know and believe the Bible. Not that we can be sinlessly perfect, for none of us can be sinlessly perfect. Not that we can know everything that the Bible says without great study and great time and many years of experience. But the best way to avoid the permissive will of God is to be tirelessly devoted to believing what the Bible says. If God's Word says it, then regardless of how inconvenient or how culturally unacceptable it might be, I'm going to believe it and I'm going to obey it. That's how we avoid the permissive will of God. And if we, as God's people, can do this, then we can avoid the place that Israel finds themselves in 1 Samuel chapter 8. A place where God was allowing them to walk outside of what His perfect will was 
because he was going to allow their heart of rebellion to go into his permissive will. Let's close in prayer.